You're listening to The Caring View. Hello and welcome to The Caring View, how to complete your PIR podcast. This is episode six. Um, I'm one of your hosts, Adam Pennell, and I'm joined by my other host today. Mark Tops. And our ever fabulous, ever knowledgeable, Karen Ritson, CQC expert. Say hello, Karen. Hello. So this, we're hoping, is actually going to be the final episode on the bulk section of the PIR. So the pre-formatted questions that are are given to you, um, this episode is going to finally finish those questions off. Now, I'm going to preface this episode with the numbers for the questions that we're giving you may look or appear different on the PIR you're completing. That's because we're, and this isn't for any sort of prejudice or sort of pre-love, we are using the residential PIR as our, our basis for this. And we are aware there are a number of differences with the, the other PIRs that are out there. Episode seven of this podcast is going to be a final episode where we look at um, differences with services and any extra questions. But it's also going to be your opportunity to get your questions to us. So if you are a home care provider and you think, actually, I don't feel like I've got enough knowledge to complete that part of my PIR, please do let us know, get us your questions, um, and I'm sure we can um, uh, bully them out of Karen for you. I'm, I'm sure we can convince her to to um, part with some of this wisdom. Um, is that okay with you, Karen? That's fine, yes, thank you. I'll just <laughs> do that. I'll be happy to. Fabulous. Thank you so much. So section six of the PIR is quality assurance and risk management, infection prevention and control. Um, now, we should all really be experts in this post pandemic. Um, and there's a lot of things that uh, we now need to be considering. But 6.1 is how do you minimize risk of infection? Now, this I, I, I don't know we really shouldn't just be thinking in the realms of COVID here, should we, Karen? We should be thinking about everything infection-wise. Is that right? Yes, that's absolutely right. They, they do ask you to consider COVID, uh, but uh, you know, pre-COVID, there would have been um, a requirement to demonstrate that you were uh, preventing and controlling infection you know, across your service in any case. So it's, it's the whole thing. Um, so, so oh, sorry. To just you know, you would think about uh, a whole range of sources of evidence to uh, to put in these five hundred words that you've you've now got to uh, to demonstrate how you're minimising uh, the risk of infection then in your service. Um, Sorry, Karen. Just before we go into the five hundred words, for anyone who is just joining us on the podcast and maybe you know jumping into this bit because this is the part you've got the most concerns about and you skip the first five episodes why go back and listen to them they're amazing but actually if we could just give everyone an update on um your top tips on how to complete these 500 word narratives um language we should be using and tips to to avoid is that okay yes i'm getting quite used to doing this now at the beginning of each show aren't I? <laughs> boxes um Yes, in terms of narrative, what I would suggest is that you stick to uh, full sentences, that you don't use any um, uh, special characters because um, or bullet points, that sort of thing, to make it look better on the page because CQC system doesn't recognise any of that. So uh, the reason I suggest using full sentences is, is 
that you're never going to be able to get in everything that you want to get in. Um, and it's better, I think, uh, easier on the eye and CQC um, staff find it easier, I think, to to read full sentences and, and just, you know, to put forward your best your best work uh, in that way. So that's very briefly uh, how I'd advise you to fill in those narrative boxes. Brilliant. Thank you. So with that in mind, 500 ways to say how we're going to minimise the risk of infection. So what things do we need to be thinking about? What evidence do we need to include? Um, and, and who really do we need to include in this? You know, do we need to be going to our teams, the people we use, who use our services? Everything you can give us on this one, Karen. Well, it's quite a, potentially quite a biggie, this one, um, because there's a, a lot of ways that you can demonstrate how you're um, minimizing the risk of infection um, so to begin with that it's probably helpful to remember that cqc are going to be using six evidence categories to make their judgments and score you as a provider um, and so it's i think it's helpful to think about how do we give cqc as much information for each of those evidence categories as we can and just to have a quick recap uh, on what they are the categories they're going to be looking at on scoring uh, providers on are people who use the service, staff feedback, professional feedback, observations, policies and proce procedures processes really, and then outcomes. So you've got six areas there to, to focus on um, around well, it, how can we give the best and the fullest information to cover all of those so that we get uh, scored fairly on each of those? So the kind of areas that I would suggest that you include for your evidence is, you know, stating that you've got a policy and procedure that's kept up to date, um, talking about staff training and um, reassuring CQC that uh, the training's kept up to date. Um, talking about staff having spot checks, you know, things like hand hygiene uh, audits, that staff are shadowed, mentored, you might include uh, supervision um, and discussions in meetings around infection control. Uh, and then you would also include what staff are fed back from supervision and meetings and surveys and that kind of thing uh, in order to uh, demonstrate what staff are telling you about how they feel about infection control. You might have um, an infection control champion, or you might call them a lead, uh, who's a resource for all of the staff. So they might have extra qualifications. There may be somebody that um, has, has a bit of extra knowledge that staff can go to uh, if they're not sure about things. Uh, you would have infection control audits. So you would talk about those in your, in your 500 words and that you would write the, how you act on the findings of those audits to improve um, the cleanliness and, and uh, infection control of the home. And, and then you would write about welcoming external infection control professionals into the service, for example, from the local authority, um, environmental health, food hygiene professionals, um, so that you show that you're, you know, you're welcoming external scrutiny and, and what the results of those are and, and if the results of any reports have been positive. You need to demonstrate that you're up to date with current government guidance around COVID and following this, including um, visiting arrangements. So that's showing that you're, you're changing your approach depending on how uh, the law is changing that you've got COVID risk assessments in place for the environment and for individual staff. And also that you have been learning from 
examples that CQC give of safety events that are external to your service and what you've learned from this. So not only are you learning from things that you uh, have experienced yourselves, but that CQC have gone to some lengths to give examples of safety events uh, on their website. I think it's helpful to have a look at those and see whether you can discuss ways in which you might be able to, as a provider, learn from those as well. And it's worthwhile writing those in that section. Um, so, you know, there's quite a lot to go out there. Um, it's not just about saying, well, we've got policies and procedures and our staff are trained. You need to think about it very holistically, Adam. And uh, I mean, it's probably not an exhaustive list, but I think that's plenty to go at, don't you, to give people a sense of, um, you know, the, the, the depth and breadth of what you need to include in that section. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I will sit here and I will advocate getting a external auditor into your service to have a look at your infection procedures because they are amazingly helpful. They will come in and they will tell you you're rubbish and they will tell you you've got lots of work to do, but it is so beneficial. I did it when I was a manager, or I'm going to say about six years ago now, and she came in and tore us asunder because we thought we were amazing. And it mm. was, you've not looked at this, you've not looked at that, you need an audit for this, you need an audit for that. And it really changed our infection procedures, our uh, housekeeping, and in fact, even our maintenance. So, you know, I, I fully recommend external auditors, but I also men recommend you have your maintenance audits in place. Because if you've got wallpaper that's peeling, that's a place for infection to harbour. So, you know, CQC are going to want to know that you're not just looking at your decor to make sure it's nice and up to date, but you're looking at anywhere in your building where anything could potentially cause growth and spread of infection isn't it yeah absolutely and and also to to be really clear about what you've done as a result of those audits because quite often we've all seen it haven't we you know i've, I've seen where you know audits have happened and there's lots of things that are raised and, and and then you know the next audit happens and the same things are raised so things sometimes don't get done and they can be quite urgent things. So you need to be able to demonstrate that you're highlighting problems, but then you've got a really robust system in place for putting it right. Impact, impact, impact. Um, and, and while we're on impact, I think it's clear for us to uh, really sort of define a difference between outcome and impact. So, you know, the outcome of your audit might be that you, you notice that there was something wrong. You notice that uh, there was a place for infection um, uh, growth or, or what have you. The impact is actually what have you, what has been the result of you changing that? You know, how has that impacted the, the, the benefits uh, for the people that you're serving? So actually having our maintenance audits, which showcase um, these areas or these uh, defects in our building, has allowed us to prevent the spread of infection during a recent DMV outbreak within our home or similar. You know, Brilliant. you've got to be able to, to look at what that impact is. Yeah. Um, so after such a wordy, you know, question where actually we're begging for more words than 500, we go on to 6.2, which is quality assurance and risk management. Now, this is just a number question, but have you got any sort of pointers, tips, things we need to be thinking about on this? Uh, yes, it's about duty of candour. So um, it's about uh, how many notifiable safety incidents in the last 12 months that have triggered the harm threshold of the duty of candour regulation. So, you know, if you look at that and you're not absolutely sure on what that means, it can make you kind of step back with, with a sharp intake of breath because it's, well, what do they actually mean? So a notifiable safety incident is a specific term defined in the duty of counter regulation. It, it's it's not just 
you know a soft piece of information it's it's something specific it shouldn't be confused with other types of safety incidents or notifications um so it it is defined a notifiable safety incident is defined as follows so it it must have been unintended or unexpected it must have occurred during the provision of an activity that you regulate uh, and in the reasonable opinion, uh, number three, in the reasonable opinion of a healthcare professional, it ha already has or might have resulted in the death or severe or moderate harm to the person receiving care. Now, the threshold for what that constitutes does vary slightly depending on the type of provider. Um, but if any of those three criteria are not met, so any one of those three, it is not a notifiable safety incident. Um, so you might want to look at a bit more guidance on this and I wouldn't be surprised if you if you did, if you felt that there was something that was close to the threshold and you weren't sure. Um, first bit of advice is to have a look at guidance under, the regula under Regulation 20, which is the duty of candour guidance in the Health and Social Care Act. Um, also, it might be one of those situations where you just give your inspector a call and say, look, you know, what do you think about this? Uh, because there will be few and far between, I would imagine, and, and nobody would blame you for getting some extra advice from CQC on that. Um, just remember, even if um, the, the criteria isn't actually reached, the overarching duty of candour to be open and transparent always applies. So it doesn't mean that you just keep all of that to yourself. But, um, you know, you do obviously record it and you share it where you need to. But for this, for the purposes of this question, uh, it's a very specific request that they're making of you and it's got quite limited parameters. So, you know, it's worthwhile spending some time just checking that you haven't got any of these. And if you have it, you're clear that this is something you need to report. Thank you very much. I think after two very meaty questions, people will be pleased that section um, 6.3 um, for a few questions is mainly yes and no questions. So section 6.3, do you administer medication? Yes or no? If people obviously put no because they're not supporting with medication, Karen, can they just then ignore the rest of the questions that come up around medication or should they still be answering them there's a question i've got for you. i'm not sure actually i'm not sure actually how the form works in terms of if you write um no whether that means that it, you know that you're easily able to go forward and miss the rest out but obviously you don't there's no need to uh, answer those questions if you don't administer medication and i have a feeling that maybe it does allow you to do that so that you don't need to fill things in where you're just you know you're, you're just writing well, it's not applicable you know in in that box if it doesn't allow you to move on i would just i would do that i would put something in there and write not applicable uh, even though you've said that you don't administer medication so they're absolutely clear on it and they don't come back and you know ask you to clarify it yeah no thank you very much 6.3a have you administered controlled drugs in the past are you able to give us an example um karen of what a controlled drug is and maybe some examples just for people listening that might not be 100% sure of whether they're administering controlled drugs or not. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the question's asking about have you administered controlled drugs in the in the last year, so in the past 12 months. Um, the term controlled drugs is defined by the Misuse of Drugs Act 1971. It's um, any substance or product specified in uh, 
part one, two or three of schedule two of the misused drugs act. So it's a bit of a mouthful, but you can you can go back and check that. But it's it's got a legal base to it. It's clearly defined in law. And controlled drugs are subject to, as you would imagine, strict legal controls and legislation, uh, which determines how they're prescribed, supplied, stored on and destroyed. So um, controlled drugs are obviously closely regulated. Um, and one of the reasons for this is they're susceptible to being misused or diverted and they can cause harm. So they can be dangerous. Um, they need to be very carefully handled. I mean, some examples might be, you know, morphine or lorazepam or gabapentin, that sort of thing. But, you know, you can there are lists of um, controlled drugs and, and, and lists of the most usually prescribed controlled drugs that you can refer to. Uh, to just just to be certain about that and obviously there are um, the professionals that you can get into to support you with making sure that you're storing and um, administering and prescribing um, not prescribing storing medicines uh, legally uh, and, and that might be part of their role that they you know they help you to recognize which of the drugs that you're storing are controlled which of them uh, may need to be still would be advisable to store as controlled drugs um, and, and which of them absolutely have to in, in law. So that's that's just some examples there, but there are obviously a lot of them that you can, uh, that are controlled drugs. Thank you very much. And I was gonna say that it's good for providers to monitor controlled drugs, and you can find that information on the government website. So you can set up um, email alerts for that page. So if you have got somebody and their medication does change into a controlled drug, you know straight away. And I think we've yeah. spoken, you know earlier about external audits and you touched on it there Karen about getting a pharmacy involved and yeah definitely utilize your pharmacy to come in and do an audit of your service and the medication to make sure that actually everything is stored correctly medication records being holding um correctly because actually it's just a, a buffer and a security check and you know if there is something that they identify then actually they're identifying it's lessons learned for you and your team so don't yeah. look at those kind of actions as a negative no that's right that's it's really useful advice, Mark. Yes. 6.3b. Have you administered medicines covertly in the last 12 months? This is a yes or no question. But Karen, a question for you. Um, for anybody kind of thinking about whether they do do medication covertly, what is covert medication? Um, and when would you want to administer medication covertly? Uh, I think the thing to remember about uh, covert medicines is that uh, a person has the right to refuse uh, medicines um, and covert medicines can only be authorised if a person lacks capacity to understand the consequences of not taking those medicines. So if somebody is making an unwise decision and they're refusing their medicines but they perfectly have the capacity to be able to refuse those medicines, that is not a situation where you would administer covert medicines at all. So uh, if a person is assessed uh, not to have capacity to understand the consequences of not taking their medicine, you would need to carry out a, a capacity assessment specific to that decision uh, and a, you would need to record a best interest decision about it and, and that decision would need to include your relevant healthcare professional uh, and other people that would be involved in that person's care around uh, medication administration. So it's not something that you would just decide to do and go ahead and do it. There would be a specific process uh, around that and you would need to be sure that you did it within uh, the law, uh, you know, in line with the Mental Capacity Act 2005. 
Thank you very much. 6.3c, how many people are or have been given medication as a form of restraint or to control behaviour in the past 12 months? Again, this is a number question. Any tips here, Karen, for this section? Uh, well, yes, we talked, I think we talked about chemical restraint in a, a previous episode, but um, it's worth bearing in mind that chemical restraint is unlawful if it's not part of an agreed plan, which is administered by trained and skilled staff. Um, so you need to be very careful and, and have, have a plan in place if this is what you're going to do and make sure your staff are are well trained and that they they know what they're doing but you know chemical restraints can be you know psychoactive medicines antidepressants anti-epileptics you know mood stabilizers such as sodium valproate so uh, but when they use specifically to control behavior so that the, the key point is that those medicines are used to control behavior so that's how you would you know work out what the number would be in answer to that question thank you very much 6.3d how many people um, who take medication have not had a medication review with a gp or healthcare professional in the past 12 months no these aren't necessarily as standard as they should be from my experience with gp and healthcare professionals what is a medication review karen just for people listening thinking oh has have my residents have one of these or have they not yeah, I think you need to be careful about uh, you know what a, a good medication review is. It's not. It's obviously not good enough just to have a bit of a chat amongst yourselves as staff, or the manager just to you know to have a quick look at things. It needs to include um, a healthcare professional, such as the GP um, or a nurse or somebody who understands a, prof a professional who understands that person's medication and who's been involved in that for the past year. Um, and it should also crucially include the person uh, and their views. Um, and also where uh, relevant, you might want to include people's, you know, the person's family or somebody that's close to them as well, who may want to advocate on their behalf, um, you know, if they need this. Uh, and the review should look at um, the, the range of medicines that a person's being prescribed. It should look at any concerns about the medicines, for example, any side effects, things that aren't working particularly well. And, and all the time, the review should be looking towards uh, moving towards the least necessary medication possible. So sometimes people, as we know, can uh, be on a whole list of medications, some of which they don't really need to be on because it hasn't been reviewed for a long time that's something that we should avoid if at all possible and we're working towards uh, the least restrictive practice at all times so that's what the medication review is around it's it's responding to people's changing needs but also looking to see you know when when practice changes or when best practices is updated that um uh, prescribing habits then follow that um, and you need the healthcare professional involved to do that uh, mark so that's what I would consider to be a, 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 a comprehensive medication review and CQC are looking for that to be at least annually but if if a person's care needs around the medication changes more often than that they would expect that to be more often uh, in line with their changing needs so you know I wouldn't just stick with annually if somebody requires it more often than that Thank you very much. That's some great advice there. 6.3e, have you used tube feeding to administer medication in the past 12 months? Now, again, this is a yes or no question, but is there any advice you have on this section? 
uh yes yeah it is a yes or no question isn't it it's uh, uh tube feeding is a is direct access to the stomach which uh, often that's called a peg it's a percutaneous endos uh, endoscopic gastrostomy <laughs> i'll get my teeth around that one but um the point here is that some medicines that are administered directly into the stomach are often done uh, off license and that means that uh, the medicines haven't been designed for this type of administration so it's careful to consider all these points with the relevant um, professionals and uh, the responsibility for making these decisions around um, peg medicines lies with the prescriber and the consulting pharmacist but also with the person who's administering the medicines to ensure they follow the guidance correctly so it's really worthwhile and, and necessary to record the whole process of, of coming to a decision about um, direct tube uh, feeding to administer medications to make sure that you can demonstrate that's been done um, in the in the safest possible way so th those are just some of the things to consider uh, around uh, tube feeding but yes it is just a yes or no question but you know you need to consider how you've come to that decision thank you very much and uh, thank you for sharing those considerations and i do apologize if you're listening you could hear my dogs there the doorbell went at the most inconvenient time but <laughs> 6.3 f how many medication related errors have there been in the last 12 months and again this is a number answer but Medication errors, what should providers be um, considering as a medication error, Karen? Yeah, again, this is just a, it's a numbers question, isn't it? But sometimes um, providers might, or registered managers might think, well, is that actually something that I need to record as an error? Uh, it's things like not signing them R, uh, missing a dose, not recording why doses have been missed. It might be using an inaccurate code um, or, or signing when the medicine hasn't actually been administered. It might be giving the wrong medicines. It might be giving too much medicine or too little. So, you know, not following uh, the prescriber's um, direction. So any of those sort of things, there's there's probably a lot more of those. But that, there's some of the examples of the kind of things that uh, you'd consider as, as errors. And your audit system would uh, flag those up to you. Thank you very much. And 6.3G, how many errors involve controlled drugs again a number answer is there anything that you haven't just um considered karen that people should consider when it comes to controlled drugs errors mm, again that's just a number isn't it that they're asking for so it's you know it's any medicine um that's defined as controlled under that misuse of drugs act and examples of um, errors might be yeah, ordering errors storage errors uh, insecure storage or you know storing at the wrong temperature or uh, administration errors similar errors to the ones that you you know that you might record for, for other medicines um, but um, that's just you know a few examples thank you karen um, for all of that and again it's just making sure that your numbers match up in the documents that you've got so if you've put that you've had two and actually you've got four in cqc and come find those missing two it's not going to look great on you so honesty is the best policy when completing this 6.4 karen r is what are the main complaints received in the past 12 months and what have you changed as a result to improve your service so bearing in mind i just uh, started this off with honesty is the best policy um what should we be doing here it's 500 words 
Well, yes, you've got 500 words to um, to demonstrate what you're doing here. And you're trying to evidence really continuous improvement and responding to people uh, in this section. So it's very helpful to be as full in your answers as you can be. Um, I know sometimes people, uh, services would regard complaints as a negative thing, but they're not always because they can be, they can be really good learning points, can't they? And uh, they can also demonstrate how you put your learning into practice and made things better for people. So I would, I would give one or two or three examples, if you can, of, of specific complaints that typify the kind of complaints that you might have had. So you might, for example, focus on um, some areas that help you to demonstrate all the different areas, you know, of the um, uh, all those evidence categories, if you possibly can, as much as you can in any case. So how you're encouraging or supporting the person to complain, that might be that they require some assistance with accessible information. Um, they might just need some support with, well, we'll ask them in the afternoon about this because in the morning um, they find things more difficult. They, they, they take a while to wake up. You know, they, they, they take some time to be able to um, be clear in, in their answers. Um, if you have an example of a person whose voice would not be easily heard and, and how I've encouraged them to complain, that can be a really powerful example of, um, of empowerment and an equality approach. So, you know, if you're thinking about uh, people who uh, you're, you're supporting and welcoming and making it more possible for them to complain, that's that's fantastic. Um, if you're working out uh, or asking the person what do you? What would you like as an outcome? What would uh, you know a good resolution of this uh, complaint be for you? So that then you can measure whether you've been successful. That's a really good thing to include. Um, you should include if you followed your procedure. Um, did you achieve the outcome? How did you do it? And what was improved? And how did this benefit um, the person and other people who use use your service too? So again. It's back to that old chestnut that we've talked about over and over again in this series of podcasts, which is about the impact on the person. So it's about what you learned. It's about what you put right, what the impact was on the person uh, as a result of you responding to that com complaint. Uh, and also, if you can show that that has also then benefited other people as a result, it's showing that you're continually improving what you're doing. Um, so you might, to use an example, you might... I mean, you might feel that you've got no complaints, but in actual fact, that might be that you've got quite a high threshold for what you consider to be a complaint. Um, and you might wait for somebody to come to you with a complaint before you consider it to be something that you categorise as such. But I would suggest that you you almost, it seems a bit counterintuitive, but you'd almost go looking for them. So if, for example, you, you had a, a, a resident uh, in, in a in a care home that was regularly seated next to a person who was regularly very loud and, and, and you know, not through no fault of their own, was quite disruptive in terms of other people's enjoyment of using that space. And uh, one member of staff noticed that this particular person at this time was overwhelmed and upset and very quiet about it. It would be very easy to miss, but the member of staff noticed that they were in tears um, and uh, really suffering then if you record that you recognise this, that you supported them, them to make a complaint about, you know, how they'd been seated within um, a lounge, for example, and to ensure they were seated in a quieter place, 
you would then record that as a complaint, even though the person hadn't brought it up. You would record the impact of the person then feeling more comfortable. You would have some fabulous evidence around how you'd um, supported the person to have a voice and how you'd listened, how you'd um, uh, given them the time and how you the impact on them was uh, something very powerful. Uh, and that uh, may look as if you're manufacturing a complaint out of thin air. It, it isn't. It's about how you are demonstrating how you listen to people and you're recognising people's discomfort. And, and, and quite often, you know, people who are in a care setting will not recognise themselves that what they're expressing is a complaint. If they were asked, they would say, I'm not complaining. But that that's something that you can move somewhere towards defining for them and then support uh, the process of, of working that out. Um, and I think that's a you know really good way of being able to demonstrate uh, a, a creative approach to dealing with complaints, Adam. Thank you very much. And I think that's great advice. And I think no service has no complaints. And I always used to take that really personally when I was a registered manager, because I'd be like, actually, nobody has complained. But what we used to have was a niggle book. So it wasn't a fully written complaint. It just went in the niggle book about kind of whether a resident didn't like the music on so loud or if they'd given some kind of negative experience around kind of meal times or whatever it was, it would go in the niggle book, what we'd done. And actually, like Karen said, is capture what you've done about that, what you've maybe put in in place, what you've changed and the impact that's had. It's all about the impact. So they are obviously a complaint. You can phrase it like I did as a niggle um, or a concern, but ultimately the CQC are going to class that as a complaint. And it's not a bad thing um, to have those because they're lessons learned. Yeah. 6.5. Now, it's worth noting um, for non-residential providers here, they won't be seeing this question, but it is a 500 word question. Um, so how are you assured that those you employ and deploy within your service have required vaccinations? Karen, over to you for some advice here. Okay. Um, yeah, to a certain extent, I'm quite surprised this question's in there. It may disappear, I think, perhaps in the future, because the regulations revoking vaccination as a condition of deployment came into a force back in March this year. So people working or volunteering in care homes are no longer required to have received a COVID-19 vaccine to enter the premises. So um, it's not a requirement. However, if you are faced with that question, if you are supporting staff, even though you don't actually, you're not required to do that. Um, if you're supporting staff to have the vaccines, it's just a place where you can state that. But I, I, it's not, I wouldn't spend a lot of time or effort filling out reams uh, of words in this. Um, it's something that's, it's, it's not required by law. I would be fairly brief in my response to this one. It's a good job that I'm no longer a provider because I know what my response would be to this one. But this is an educational podcast, which we are using to help support people. I, I mean, it's, it's all service specific, isn't it? You may be a service that actually you really want to promote the uptake of those um, vaccinations, especially with uh, the flu vaccination. I know there's targets within local authorities for people to hit targets when it comes to flu vaccinations. Um but yeah, like you say, Karen, there is no sort of um, mandate on it at the moment. So it would be interesting to know what um, CQC's outlook is on a service based on this question, what they're looking for when they come um, based on this section of the PIR. 
Mm. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I think that's you know, I don't think they'll. I don't think they'll do very much with it, to be quite honest. But I mean, no. I might. I might be wrong, but I think not. So, section. Uh, sorry, question six point six is: Do you currently use a digital social care record system at your location? Yes or no? And again, I find this odd. This being just a yes or no question because this feels like something that you should be giving loads of information about about why you've done it and why it's beneficial so they've got a, a a background or an idea but this is just a yes or no question it is uh, i'm surprised as well and and uh i suppose it's something that you could include in your successes isn't it if you've if you have um uh, adopted a digital social care record system and, and you feel that it's working well for you it might be something to include there in, in the narrative box you've got around there because you have no capacity to do it here um, it might be, uh, for example, electronic care planning or an, an electronic audit system um, because CQC have, have set out the stall really to say that they believe that this helps providers send information and generate reports more easily and helps uh, helps them to demonstrate compliance. Um, so, uh, you know, this and also their strategy theme around accelerating improvement. You know, they, the strategy with the four themes, accelerating improvement is one of those themes. In that, CQC is advising that you, as providers, embrace technology and innovation to support you know improved care outcomes. So basically, I think if you're answering yes to this question, CQC will broadly like it. They'll feel that you're moving towards um, innovation and uh, you know continuous improvement. If you're not, you know it's not the end of the world. But a lot of services are moving into electronic systems now, and they're also just trying to get an overview of uh, you know the industry really and what's happening within that. So it's it's partly a statistical thing for them. And, and the narrative bit would obviously need to go elsewhere. I suppose there's there's space at the end for the narrative for the um, anything else you want to tell us about your service um, just before you'd submit. So I suppose you could put something in there, couldn't you? Yeah, you could. You could. You could use the space that you've got there for for that or for anything else that you felt that you you know, particularly in, re in regard to the yes and no questions. Uh, there may be things that you want to expand on that uh, you haven't been able to. So that's the place for doing that there. Yeah. Yeah, great tips, great tips. Well, that's that's it, really. That's the bulk of the PIR done. We've we've gone through it. We've took it apart. You've given us all your knowledge that you you possibly can do for these sections, and you know we are eternally grateful. And I think this is going to be a huge benefit to anyone listening to it. But we are going to come back with one final episode. It's going to be a recap episode. It's going to be looking at uh, any additional questions, any sort of service-specific questions, um, and any questions really from the audience who are listening to this thinking, actually, I want to ask something else. How have you found it, Karen? Well, I've, I've, personally, I've loved every, every minute of it. And actually, it's been helpful to me because there's been some areas where I've needed to go away and actually research some of this. So it's vastly you know, helped me in terms of you know, how I can then go forward and help other people. Um, uh, I mean, I've been supporting people with PIRs for quite a long time, but it's really focused my attention you know, on, on all the little details. And um, I've really loved it. I mean, I felt that your questioning has been brilliant. It's really helped me. Uh, it's been it's felt really relaxed and lovely. I hope that you know everybody else has felt the same. And it's it's been a really, um, really useful thing for me. And hopefully, it has been for the people as well. That's fantastic. Honestly, thank you so much, Karen. And, and Mark, yeah, you're still in the 
the business of delivering care, albeit um, reablement. How have you found this podcast? Oh, yeah, no, it's been amazing. And I just want to say thank you, Karen, because during the, must have been the second episode, the PIR for one of my services came in. So it was great to be able to use the first couple of episodes and the third one before we had to submit before our deadline. But the tips and the insight that you've shared have, yeah, have just been priceless. So thank you very much for joining us on this. Um, and I know that we've had some amazing feedback from registered managers um, and directors on on the um, podcast so far. So yeah, thank you very much. That's great to hear. So we are going to come back for one final episode. Um, before then, if you do want to know more about Karen, you can connect with her on LinkedIn. Her details are in the description to this podcast. And you can also go to her website, which is www.outstandingcarerating.co.uk. And those are the services that Karen provides. So you can connect with her outside of this podcast. And I'm not just saying this because you've done a fantastic job on this podcast, but I highly recommend Karen for her knowledge and understanding around uh, the submissions of PIR and CQC compliance on a whole. Um, and would highly recommend her services to, to anyone looking for that bit of bit additional support on, on the PIR or, or when it comes to CQC. Um, but this has been the How to Complete Your PIR podcast, episode six. We will be back for episode seven as a recap, extra service specific questions and any questions you may have for us. But until then, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Karen, again for your knowledge and wisdom. And thank you, Mark, for being my ever beautiful co-host. Goodbye. <laughs> thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to The Caring View. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, as well as various podcasting sites. So don't forget to subscribe, like, and share to become part of the conversation.